Good morning. This morning's reading is from Matthew 11, verses 1 to 9. Um, you can find it in your Bibles or follow it on the screen behind me. After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesies until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Thanks so much, Annalise. And it's uh, great to be able to be with you for a few weeks just to open up Matthew's Gospel. And I just bring you greetings from all around the, the Trinity Network. Uh, this weekend, uh, there's actually a, a camp happening up at Woodside up in the hills. Uh, the Campbell, we're planning a church at Campbelltown that kicks off in about a month's time. And uh, the group that, that are made up from people from uh, Modbury uh, Church and the uh, Hill Street Church, as well as some people from Trinity City, have gone away to get to know each other and build uh, that sense of community as they anticipate uh, planting. So be praying for them. Uh, in two weeks from today, uh, a new church is also starting up down at Tonsley. So Colonel Lake Gardens are. Uh, planting down there so it's, there's a fair bit going on around the network right now and uh, as all those churches were praying for you when you you started just a short time ago it'd be great to be praying for them that they'll be able to be effective in in reaching out to others so as uh, as we kick off wouldn't i pray that uh, god will be with us as we tuck into his word let's pray father we do thank you for your great kindness to us we pray that you'll help us to understand what you've written to us uh, to take it to heart and just to think through its implications for our lives. Uh, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It was 1993 uh, when it was announced that I was going to be the next senior pastor of Holy Trinity Church in the city. And here's a picture of me. Uh, Yep, there you go. I was 35 years old, 
And up until this point, actually, this was taken a few years later, but I was only 35 at the time. And I'd been the, uh, essentially the youth minister, high school youth, and worked with students. And so when the announcement was made, uh, there were a few people in the church who felt quite nervous. Right? And actually, I was one of them, truth be known. But uh, the following weekend, I remember after the end of uh, the main morning service, there was a man who came up to me. Uh, his name was Ray. And he was a fairly imposing bloke. He was in his 60s at that stage, about six feet four. And he was a, yeah, one of those force of nature type people. And he came up to me when I was out the front and he said to me, Paul, I think the trustees have made a terrible mistake appointing you as the senior pastor of this church. He said, you're far too young and far too inexperienced to be the pastor of this church. I thought, I, I, I thought, I wonder what he thinks, you know. <laughs> I didn't have to wonder at all. And he, he paused at that moment. I suspect he was looking for feedback on that. But actually, truth be known, I agreed with him. Uh, I was young and I wasn't inexperienced. So, uh, there wasn't a lot I could say at that point. And then he continued on and said, but Paul, I want you to know that you'll have my full support. And he left. <laughs> And I felt strangely warmed, you know, about that whole experience. Actually, people were very, very gracious. Today, as we continue into Matthew chapters 11 and 12, what we come across are lots of negative reactions to Jesus, uh, people having questions about him and who he was. But the first one, as we get to chapter 11, is just a bit of a surprise, Right, let's look at it. If you've got your Bible there, that's fine. I'll throw the verses up on the screens. But the first person who has questions about Jesus is John the Baptist. And he obviously feels like Jesus is not measuring up in some way. So chapter 11, verse 2. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, much earlier in Matthew's Gospel, back in chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus come out into the wilderness to be baptised by John. Right? And this is what happened. John 3, verse 14. Sorry, Matthew 3, verse 14. Uh, John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, said John. And you come to me? See, at this point in Matthew's Gospel, when we get to chapter 11, uh, Jesus has been doing extraordinary things. But even back in chapter 3, Jesus was John's pin-up boy. So why at this point is John the Baptist uh, moving on and thinking that he's changed his mind and Jesus might not be the real deal? Well, Jesus replies, verses 4 and 5, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. They'd heard Jesus back in Matthew 5, 6 and 7. Jesus had uh, spoken the Sermon on the Mount, extraordinary teaching profound teaching then we get to chapters 8 and 9 
They have seen the amazing miracles that Jesus did. There's a leper who's healed. Leprosy was the cancer of the first century. And with a word, he's cured. The blind see. You know, step aside, Fred Hollows. Uh, The dead are raised. It's an extraordinary thing to be able to reverse someone's mortality. Uh, Yeah, goodbye to funeral directors. Jesus had been doing amazing things and teaching extraordinary things. And Jesus effectively is quoting from the Old Testament the predictions about him. Uh, Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. It predicted what the the Messiah would do. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. See, Jesus is doing the stuff that the Messiah was meant to do. And here's the thing. John had witnessed all this. Right? Back in chapter 11, verse 2, John had heard about the deeds of the Messiah. He was in the know about all these things, and yet he still had questions. So why? Well, it was because he expected the Messiah to do other stuff too. So if we went back to Isaiah 61, verse 1, There we read that the Messiah would bring freedom for the captives and release from darkness for prisoners. Where is John when he sends his messengers to ask these questions? He's in prison. Maybe he's wondering at a personal level why he hasn't been released. I mean, maybe. But maybe it was just that there were a much wider set of expectations around what the Messiah would do. Let me take you back to Isaiah 35, verse 4. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance and divine retribution. He will come to save you. Or Isaiah 61, verse 2. The Messiah would proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. That would, that would be signaled by the Messiah's presence. And John himself had preached about the coming judgment of God. And here he is in prison because he confronted Herod and warned him about the judgment that would come because of his idolatry. But what about Jesus? You see, to date, Jesus had been doing all the stuff that made him really popular. You know, he'd been healing, raising the dead, reversing the impact of living in a world of of suffering and pain. But from John's perspective, where was the judgment of God on the enemies of God's people? Why hadn't he done something about that? Surely when the Messiah came, wouldn't he bring in the judgment of God? That's the question that's in John's mind. And of course... Uh, from where we stand, we know that's a timetabling issue. Yeah, yes, uh, Jesus is doing the works of the Messiah at this point. But if we're able to read on in Matthew's Gospel, we see that the judgment of God actually falls on his own son and that 
people are spared the judgment of God if they put their trust in Jesus. Uh, Jesus is raised from the dead, and in due course, he would return. We're told he will return in judgment. And for those who put their trust in Jesus, they are spared the judgment of God. And for those who aren't, there is judgment to fall. You see, for, for John, he, he squeezed all that stuff together. And he was wondering about the other side of it, which, of course, was still to come. But you get it, don't you? The big issue for John is he didn't feel like Jesus was, was measuring up to his messianic standards. And so Jesus deals with John's doubts. I think today um, I'm offering, often encountering people who feel like Jesus doesn't measure up. Sometimes it's in my uh, discussions with unbelievers uh, who feel like Jesus doesn't measure up. Sometimes I think it's actually Christians uh, who expect something more of God, that God hasn't delivered in some way that they're expecting him to. So I want to just look at each of those just briefly as we, um, we think about what we, we learn from this incident. Firstly, a word for those who uh, don't believe. So you might be here today, you wouldn't count yourself a Christian. And I guess I want to ask you why you're not. You know, why, why haven't you put your trust in Jesus? In what way doesn't he measure up to your expectations? And there can be lots of reasons. Sometimes it's uh, because of suffering you see in this world and you think surely if uh, God was God, he'd be eradicating suffering. Uh, maybe it's because you observe situations like the one in Ukraine and you think, well, that, there's just evil being perpetrated there. Surely God had closed that down. Why hasn't he done that? Or maybe it, it goes back to those old questions about science. I mean, science, surely science has disproved God's existence. Or you might think there's not enough evidence. Or maybe it's just a case of thinking there's too much to lose if you do become a follower of the Lord Jesus. I've had those conversations and other conversations over the years. And generally what I'll do is take people to the uh, the evidence for who Jesus was and uh, get people to consider him, the miracles he did in the scriptures, uh, the fulfillment of the long-standing promises of God. And then sometimes people will say to me, yeah, but I can't believe the Bible. You know, we always, always know the Bible's not reliable. Uh, and I'll then do some work to try and show why the Bible can be relied upon, why it's historically accurate. And then we'll go back to what the historically accurate Bible points to in terms of what Jesus does. And then people will say, yeah, but you can't believe in miracles, can you, right, today? And I'll say, well, let's go back to the Bible, you know, which you can rely upon that points to the miracles. And I say, yeah, but you can't trust the Bible, you know. It feels like we just go around in circles sometimes. And I'm not thinking that the questions aren't legitimate or reasonable or anything like that. But I keep thinking, wouldn't it be better just to consider the evidence just rather than dismissing it? At the end of the day, Jesus says the, the, the reasons people have for not believing in him, bottom line, and I'm talking bottom line at this point, they're really a smokescreen. In Matthew 11, verse 16, Jesus makes this, this interesting comment. He says, to what can I compare this generation? He said, they're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you. 
and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. Uh, I've got eight grandchildren, you know, seven and under. It's interesting to see them uh, playing games. Often it's all very self-referencing sort of about them and sometimes it can be fickle. So when they're playing games, often I notice if things aren't going quite their way, the rules will change mid-game and suddenly we have a new set of rules that seem to make it possible for them to be successful as they move forward. Jesus is saying when people reject him, there's a level of fickleness about it, uh, a level of unreasonableness about it. I remember one time catching up with a guy and we, we spent a bit of time uh, talking about who Jesus was and eventually I said, yeah, why would you say is the reason you're not a Christian? And he said to me, well, he said, I'm a, a member of Mensa. And, uh, and of course, if you know what Mensa is, it's a, it's a group for people of high IQ. And he had an IQ. I asked him, yeah, what's your IQ? And he said, oh, last it was measured, it was 146, you know, which puts him in a fairly uh, smart sort of category. But you get the point he was making? You see, he was saying he's too smart for Jesus. And, and there can be lots of twos that people have, you know, too smart for Jesus, too successful for Jesus, too sophisticated for Jesus, too good-looking for Jesus, too you can stick almost anything you like into that category. But I want to say that Jesus actually sees through all those excuses. Uh, I'm not saying that people don't have reasons for unbelief, and I think they, they always need to be addressed with patience and grace. But get the bottom line here. Jesus is saying they're never sufficient. You know, they never actually stack up. And I think that's because at the end of the day, it's only Jesus who is the Messiah. He's the only one who can rescue and save people. He's the only one that has the answers to life's deepest questions. He's the only one who meets the yearnings of the human heart. Jesus. He's the one who actually in due course in this gospel goes to the cross so that people can be forgiven. He's the one who rises from the dead so people can be raised from the dead. He's the one before whom will appear on the judgment day and if we've trusted in him, we'll be right with God and if not, we'll experience the judgment of God. He, he is the one uh, that we need to put our trust in. But of course, many of us here uh, today, we are believers. Can I ask you, are there ever points at which you feel like Jesus is not enough? Were you caused to, um, to question or to doubt him? It's interesting, isn't it? Today, uh, if you're a, a Christian, call yourself a Christian in Australia, then you're part of a, a minority group. And maybe you're acutely aware of being in that group, maybe when you're surrounded by unbelieving family or friends, or possibly when your ethics that, that were once seen as sort of quaint but good, you know, but your morality is now perceived by society to be repressive or even evil, maybe times like that. Or maybe it's when you hear the arguments of 
the new atheists, uh, telling you that promoting Jesus is just foolish or even irrational. Sam Harris is uh, one of the called one of the four horsemen. So he's one of the new atheists, along with uh, people like Christopher Hitchens, Rich, Richard Dawkins, uh, Daniel Dennett. And uh, he wrote a book uh, which was called A Letter to a Christian Nation. So a well-known atheist, and he said this, The problem with religion, because it's been sheltered from criticism, is that it allows people to believe en masse what only idiots or lunatics could ever believe in isolation. Uh, what, is, what does he really think? You know, uh, <laughs> a subtle statement. But do you ever find that people treat you like an idiot uh, because you're a follower of Jesus? They may not say that, but they might just give you the impression that that's their view. Or maybe you just feel worn down uh, because you live in a sin-soaked world. And you might be acutely aware of that with all that's going on in the Ukraine right now. And maybe you're caused to question those points whether faith in Jesus is enough. Here are the two encouragements that, that Jesus gives us in this passage that I want to take you to. So the first is he reassures us that we're on the winning team. Over the last couple of years, it's been interesting, isn't it? It's been a challenging time for professional sports people to be able to show up in different ways. Over the last two years, the AFL, for example, has made all sorts of uh, compromises, shorter seasons to be able to get their teams together. And, of course, at the end of last year, they were still able to play the grand final, uh, just not quite in the way that they were planning to. And, of course, if you follow the AFL, you know that Melbourne, the Demons, won the premiership for the first time in a number of decades, right? And they defeated, well, who knows? You know, who can remember and who cares? You know, it's, it feels a bit like that. Uh, that it, that's the sort of reality of things. Jesus, he wants us to know that even in the middle of the struggles, that we're on the right side of history. Chapter 11, verse 12. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence and violent people have been raiding it. Isn't it a quirky verse? It's a bit unusual. I think actually it's not particularly well uh, translated. There's certainly been a lot of ink spilled over this one. Let me give you a better translation, which will also be on the screen. Uh, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and violent people have been raiding it. Kingdom of God has been forcefully advancing and violent people have been raiding it. Now you might not think that's uh, that much clearer. So let me tell you what I think is going on here. God is fulfilling his promises uh, to establish his rule in our world. And the point he's making here is that, in fact, it is always gaining momentum. That is, Jesus can be opposed, but God will establish his purposes and fulfill his promises. And the reality is around the world, we see that happening today. In South America, in China, in Africa, in Asia, people are streaming into the family of God in unprecedented numbers. 
conversions to Christianity across the globe are outstripping the growth of the world's population at a much faster rate. So right now there are around 2.5 billion people, uh, over 30% of the world's population, who are calling themselves followers of Jesus. And even in Adelaide, uh, here in Australia, we're seeing people turn to Christ and believe. But make no mistake, the growth of the gospel will always be opposed. That will always be the case. There'll always be new atheists like Sam Harris. There'll always be things like the cancel culture. There'll always be persecution in countries like China and Myanmar and Africa and Indonesia. There will always be a much more level of subtle pressure that we'll feel in liberal Western democracies like the one we're in. But here's the point. None of that will ever defeat God's purposes. God will keep gathering his people from the four corners of the globe. Uh, The reality is we live in the age of salvation. We live in the age of the mercy of God. Judgment day is coming. And that's the point that Jesus is making to John the Baptist. Judgment day, sure, that is coming. I am the Messiah. But remember that we live in the age of salvation. God is calling people into his family right now. Okay, remember, you're on the right side of history. And then the second thing Jesus says to encourage us, and this is really interesting, isn't it? He says that if you're a follower of Jesus, then you are to remember that you are greater than John the Baptist. All right, I just want to emphasize that. You count yourself a follower of Jesus, I want to tell you this morning, you are greater than John the Baptist. And that's the point being made in verses 7 to 10. Uh, Jesus talks about what a great prophet John the Baptist was. In fact, he calls him the last great prophet. But then in verse 11, he says this. Among those born of women, there's not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Right? A high praise. Yet, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, when uh, Ray came up to me and said I was far too young and far too inexperienced to be the senior minister... I suspect he'd forgotten that I was greater than John the Baptist. You know, <laughs> I think that's, uh, that was the problem, right? But understand what Jesus is saying here. The least in the family of God, the kingdom of God, is greater than John the Baptist. So if you're here today and you're a believer, even if you feel insignificant or insignificant in this church, even if you feel like you're just hanging on by the skin of your teeth to the promises of God, You're greater than John the Baptist. But how? I mean, in in what, what sense? See, when you think about John met Jesus, he lived in the age of Jesus' extraordinary miracles. In fact, John was the one who introduced Jesus to the world in terms of his public ministry. John was greater than Isaiah and Jeremiah. So in what sense are you greater than him? How could that be? Friends, here's the reason. You see, you and I, we stand on this side of the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know what it means to have our sins forgiven by trusting in the Lord Jesus and his death. We know 
that on judgment day when we stand before the throne of God, uh, we will appeal to what Jesus has done for us on the cross and know with absolute confidence that we are secured by Jesus' efforts for us, not what we've done. And we know that Jesus is the one who will raise us to life because he was raised to life. We now have extraordinary joy because we belong to that eternal family. We now have a depth of Christian fellowship with other believers here, uh, but across Adelaide, across Australia and throughout the world uh, because we are united by this wonderful life-giving promise of, of what God has made to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that we don't live in difficult or challenging or opposed times. We do. No question about that. But they do not tarnish the commitment that God has to fulfilling his plans or the promises that he has sown in your heart. See, John the Baptist, uh, he had doubts and he had challenges. And friends, uh, we will too. But I want to remind us, never to forget how privileged we are and to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ and all the promises that we have in him. And if we do that, uh, then we will be secure even in the midst of the struggles. Okay? Let me pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do uh, thank you for... Uh, all that we read here in your word, we thank you for the promises that you make to us and your son. Uh, Father, we know that we live in a contentious world, a world where uh, we know what it is to be opposed or uh, mocked or looked down on because we're followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we get that. It's not that we always understand how you're running your world, uh, this side of that judgment day when Jesus returns. And yet, Father, we pray that we'll be secured in the knowledge that you are faithful to your promises, that you provided for us in your Son, that you have secured the future for all eternity. Father, help us to keep trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ in the middle of contention, in the middle of uh, stress, in the middle of those sort of oppositions. And Father, we pray that you'll help us to keep in mind that the age we live in, uh, this side of that final judgment day, is the day of salvation, the day of you extending your grace and mercy uh, to many. And Father, we pray you'll give us the great joy of seeing many come into the kingdom through the networks that we have and through the work of this church. Father, we pray it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.